There we go. You know Ann Seltzer? She's on the call over there. I'll Hi, bet. Ann. Hello. Nice to see you. Hi, Terry. There's Terry. Terry Hancock. Yeah. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast conversation with Winnie Moranville, who I've gotten to know recently. Curiously enough, uh, most of the time, Winnie, that you were writing for the register, I was not in town. So I've had a fun time this morning going through your clips and seeing all the wonderful things that that you've done for the register and, of course, your cookbooks. It's it's astounding, and it's so fun to have you as part of the Iowa Writers Collaborative. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for asking me to do this. Um, I don't know if people know the story, but I think May 1st, you asked me to do it, and I was like, maybe, maybe, and you just kind of kept on me. <laughs> you are very <laughs> persuasive. <laughs> and finally, I did it, I'm really glad I did. Out of all the... Um, uh, uh, forums for independent journalists, uh, the platforms for independent journalists, Substack is by far the best. It works, it works for writers more than any other, any other platform I've been on as an independent journalist. I'm interested in why you say that, Winnie. You've, well, tried, you've been on, you've been in magazines, you've been a restaurant oh, reviewer in newspapers, oh, and you've had oh, a blog. I'm not, oh. I, 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 I'm not saying that this works better for me than the register or better homes and gardens or cookbooks. I'm saying that as an ind when when I write independently, when I write independently, my own work that I want to put out there, I used to have a blog and then I did face, you know, I did, did a lot on social media. Um, but all of that, first of all, you know, when you, when you do anything on Facebook, you can, you can give out, you can give people great information on Facebook, but the only person who's profiting is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, it's like, you, right. you know, you, what, you're just giving all this information for free. And I like to do that. I like to support people, but I also have to make a living. Um, and then blogging is just, you know, just putting your blog out there is really hard to sort of monetize because you have to chase after advertisers and clicks and, and all of that. And, and, uh, you know, Substack is, there's no algorithms, there's no clickbait, you know, you have to put, you don't have to put clickbait up there, you don't have to, you're not working for clicks, um, you're not working for SEO, search engine optimization, so you don't put in those really weird search terms, you just write, and if people want to see it, they're going to see it. And that's, it's between me and the reader. And it's the best thing I've ever done independently, right. which is not to denigrate anything I've done as a writer for other, uh, other um, publications like the register and all that. So. Well, I was so tickled by your, your start, because as soon as you, as soon as you announced you were doing this, all of a sudden you had quite a few subscribers relative to most of the people in the Iowa Writers Collaborative. It takes a while to get the word out, but man, you were up and running. I think people like to read about food. They do. I, I think that if, if anybody, if I was thinking, if anybody in the Iowa Writers Collaborative asked me, what's your secret to, you know, getting all these subscribers, like write about food. <laughs> You'll get subscribers if you write about food. People love to read about food. They love to talk about food. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a topic. So, yeah. Well, that, that brings me to what I want folks to take away from our conversation today. Anybody can write about food. Mm -hmm. But you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a particular expertise. I'm going to have you talk because I've got a little, I'm going to go mute and cough a little bit. Okay. So you tell me about your background and what makes you um, an authentic food critic. Oh, well, thank you. Um, all right. Well, I will say, uh, you know, before I did um, 
any food writing or any writing at all. I waited tables for 10 years um, in Des Moines. I started waiting tables at like the age of 13 and three quarters for Baker's Cafeteria. I mean, it wasn't really waiting. I mean, that was more like carrying trays, but it was still in the food industry. And then I worked for all the Yonkers restaurants, both downtown and out at the Meadowlark. Um, I worked at a dismal restaurant called the Country Kitchen. I don't know if you, that was, that was, it was, I, I wrote, I've written about that. Um, I've written stories about working there. And then um, I worked for a wonderful vegetarian restaurant called the Soup Kitchen back in the seventies. It was such a groovy place. And, the shops building, right? Uh, no, well, there was down, one downtown, but I worked at the one on Forest Avenue in the Drake area. Yeah. Wonderful place. And then um, I went to the University of Iowa, got out of of college with a French and English major that uh, did me no good during the recession of the um, early 80s. I was waiting tables at the Des Moines Golf and Country Club full time. And it was a long year and a half that I was waiting to, you know, sort of launch a career somewhere. So I moved to New York City, got into publishing, you know, moved to England, worked in publishing there as well, came back to Des Moines um, uh, and fell into writing for um, sort of the Better Homes and Gardens family of publications. And um, while I was doing that, and, you know, it was just a very luck of the draw. I told, you know, people knew my interest in food. They knew how much I love food. And I'd been traveling to France every summer. And a friend of mine said, who worked at Meredith said, why don't you start editing for Meredith at, you know, their food publications? And I said, sure. And she opened the door for me. And that was basically my career for 25 years. Uh, it was wonderful that. And then at the same time, the register was looking for a food critic and I tried out for that and it all fell together. And I'm a late bloomer. I think I was like 35 or 36 when it <laughs> when it finally all fell together as, as a food writer. And and, it, and it, it's been a it's been a good ride ever since. So I was the Des Moines Register's food critic from 1997 to 2012. And then I wrote for DSM magazine for their food stories for, I still do an occasional one, but it, you know, solidly for, from about 2012 to 2019. Well, I think I can speak now. We'll see how this goes, but I put a a little montage of your book covers as my background here. (laughs) Tell me about these books. How did you come about the titles? Well, French pasta. Okay. French pasta, but the the little women book and. Well, the Bun Farm cookbook was, they asked, um, I, I was, I was um, doing a lot of work for Meredith Books, and there was a cookbook editor there who eventually went to work for Harvard Common Press out in Boston. And he and I had had a lot of conversations about, you know, because I take off and go to France for, you know, a lot of the summer, and then I'd come back and, you know, continue my work. And, you know, I would talk about the food I found in, in France, um, you know, the everyday nature of the food, not the Michelin star food, but just what your average, you know, French person puts on the table for his or her family. It's not that complicated. It's, but it's really beautiful food. And this editor, um, Dan Rosenberger said, you know, would you write a cookbook? Um, you know, would you write a cookbook for Harvard Common Press? So that, that was the Bun Pom cookbook. And, um, and it's been reissued in paperback. That that book right now is no longer available. But the the new book they put in paperback and they added photos and it's called Everyday French Cooking. And I'm sure Beaverdale Books has it, but it's Everyday French Cooking. Same, pretty much the same recipes. I added some new ones and took out some of the more difficult ones because I really wanted to stay with the easy everyday nature of it. 
And then the Little Women cookbook, uh, when when the Little Women Women movie came out a couple of years ago, um, Greta Gerwig's version, um, the same editor at Harvard Common Press said, what do you think of writing a, a cookbook about the food in Little Women? And I said, is there food in Little Women? So I went and reread it. And there is food all over that book. Food plays such an important role in that book. It's absolutely beautiful how she weaves, you know, food and family throughout. And so I basically researched a bunch of recipes from that time period, updated them a little bit for today and uh, and came up with that cookbook and also, you know, wove the story of little women and how food works in little women in in that cookbook. So that was a blast. That was a blast to write. You have a new book coming out at some point soon. It's it's a memoir and it's about food. Is it sort of Nora Ephron-like where you include recipes? Or how, tell, tell us about this new book you have. This one will not have recipes. This is basically, it's, it's going to be called um, Love is My Favorite Flavor. A Midwestern food critic or Midwestern uh, restaurant reviewer tells all. And it's basically about First of all, I'm really going to recount, go back to the years I worked in waitressing in Des Moines and focusing on what people went out. You know, I I think what I've learned writing this book was the food has changed. The food has gotten better from the from the 50 years I've been involved in food in Des Moines. The food is definitely better. But the reasons we go out to eat are basically the same. You know, just just wanting to sit down and be with people and enjoy a meal together and have a connection to the people who serve you and cook your food. All of those things are still important and and, you know, they resonate through, throughout the 50 years. So that's um, kind of what it's about. But it's also about like I, when I waited tables at Yonkers, especially downtown, I was amazed at how those people took care of each other. I mean, these were, you know, um, the 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 management, there were people who worked in the Yonkers kitchens and the Yonkers, you know, on the floor, bus girls, you know, they were, some of them were developmentally disabled and they took care of these people. And there was a sense that everybody took care of everybody. Um, and I love that. And I write a lot about that. And I write about the hospitality that, you know, we found at Baker's Cafeteria and the soup kitchen, how this thread of really taking care of each other and the people who sit at your tables all moves through. And then I became the restaurant reviewer and I'd see glimpses of that in some of the restaurants and how much I loved seeing that, as well as loved seeing the food take off in Des Moines, the food get better and better and better in the years that I reviewed it. So so it's kind of about both. You know, it's about my my waiting tables and my writing about food all throughout and uh, and also just sort of the ins and outs and highs and lows and you know of being a restaurant reviewer in Des Moines of being recognized how awkward that can get um you know of of having to write bad reviews not I having absolutely despising having to write bad reviews but knowing that that was a, a part of the job you know so it, it encompasses the whole the whole thing you have a different approach to reviewing today than you did some years ago. Talk talk to us about that. Well, I'm trying very hard to only write about restaurants that are really, truly good. There's no reason, you know, back, back in the day, I had to write a column every week and, you know, 50, 52 restaurants, you're going to find some duds, you know, they're not all going to be good. So you can't, and you can't, the number one thing you can, you cannot lie to your reader. It's the easiest thing to do is to sort of overlook things and say, 
yeah, you know, that wasn't great, but I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll bury that. You know, your reader trusts you so much and you, you know, you, you just cannot lie to them and say something was good when it wasn't. And so that's the painful part of reviewing, you know, week after week after week. But with this Substack, if I don't find something good to write about in terms of a restaurant, I can write about something else. I can interview a chef. I can talk talk about new things that are coming. So if, if there are a couple of weeks go by and I haven't interviewed and I haven't written a review, it's probably because I went out to a couple of restaurants and they weren't that good. And I'm not going to bother I'm not going to, I don't think people want to read my column to find out where not to go. They want to read my column to find out where to go. That said, I'm finding it that there might be times when I'm going to have to point out some things that aren't great. I'm not going to lie. Like the, the Webster in Iowa city is a phenomenally good restaurant, but one of the things I ordered there wasn't good. I mean, it was, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't great. I think it's fair game to tell people that because I don't want them to go there and order it, you know? Um, so it's not going to be, I, I'm not going to think of, you know, 35 different ways to say this is awesome. I'm going to, it's going to be balanced, but there will ne- there will be no out and out negative reviews. That's so I'm going to open this up to the folks on the call. If they have questions or comments, love to, love to get a participatory uh, conversation going. But in the meantime, tell me what you see is your, your vision for your Substack column. You don't have an editor you don't have a boss saying you have to do this at such and such a time. You can do whatever you want when you want to do it. How, how, how do you see this evolving for you? Um, okay, so Christopher Diebel, who is uh, the owner, one of the owners of Bubba, and he's a restaurant tour, he's a restaurant uh, consultant. He said to me something that has really resonated. He says when he talks to people who are opening restaurants, he says you can have the best vision ever for the restaurant you want to open, but ultimately your customers are going to tell you what your restaurant is. You know, they're going to order what they're going to order. They're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to move you in different ways. And I think that the, I thought that's kind of like the Substack. When I started the Substack, I was like, I don't want to, I only want to write one review a month. <laughs> well, people want to hear about food. I mean, they want to hear about restaurants. They want, they, they seem to respond to my reviews more. So I'll be doing reviews. Um, but I also really want to do travel stories, travel in Iowa. I don't see anybody out there doing just the small travel, you know, two, three days from Des Moines travel. Des Moines focused in terms of if you live in Des Moines, here's somewhere you can get. It'll take you this long and here's where you can stay, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, we, I did an, I, I had, a, a, I'm having guest writers, by the way, and I'm paying my contributors um, to to write col- you know the columns as if they're an expert on something like Jane Austen Miller, longtime um, magazine journalist. I had her write on Clear Lake. She has a lake home up there. I said I've gone to Clear Lake, but I feel like I'm missing something. I love it, but I feel like I haven't gotten everything I I need to get out of Clear Lake. Tell me what to do. So she wrote a wonderful column. People loved that column. I can tell th- through my metrics and what people read. So so it will depend on what people want, what people read. Um, so that that's you know that said I really do want to bring on experts and uh, I have Christine Riccelli from um, the Des Moines or from DSM Magazine she's writing a travel piece um, for me on uh, up, up up in the Northwoods of of Minnesota so you know I've I've got I've got other writers who will, who will help me and I can do that because people are paying 
people are, you know, are, are becoming paid subscribers. So I can afford to hire people who are experts in something I might not be. You know, the other, the other component to Substack versus uh, putting an article out into the freelance environment is that you may get a lot of readers in a magazine that you freelance and you might get 500 to $1,000 or whatever, but you yeah. don't have the relationship with the reader. Right. right. This way, this way, you bring people into your space, they subscribe, they sometimes pay, and they stick. They're your they're your readers. It's yeah. a wonderful format. It really is. It, it, so far, so good. And, you know, I also think that, you know, I have 6,000 followers on my All Things Food Des Moines page on Facebook. But that Facebook is so dicey. You know, you can you can put something out there that you think is perfectly fine. And all of a sudden people are just arguing and getting crabby at each other. And, you know, I've had to block people. And I, it's like, for some reason, that stuff isn't happening on Substack. People are not being nasty to each other. I, I, I won't allow it. I mean, if somebody would, I mean, I, on Facebook, I can delete people's comments, but it's tiresome to go through and read everybody's comments. And But on, on Substack, it's very easy. I get a, you know, I get an alert when somebody said something and not one person has said anything that I needed to delete. You know, it's great. I just don't think it's that kind of, people come to Substack for the writing. People come because they want to read. They want to read and they like the writing. And that's not what they're necessarily going to Facebook for. So it's a great forum for me. Well, one of my goals in this interview with you is for people to understand how your background plays in to what you're doing today. And we've touched on it with, you know, the, the, the time you've spent as a server, I think is, I don't know if it's unique to reviewers, but I think it's really important to understanding the process of what goes in step by step to the presentation of a meal. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think that um, it, it's it's very interesting about, you know, having the background as a server can be double-edged because on the one hand, I, when I go to a font, because I did work at the Des Moines Golf and Country Club's, you know, candlelight dining room, we, you know, we were trained and, you know, very fastidious service. It was very, I mean, it was a high level of service that I had never done before and that you really don't see that often. Now, when I go to a fine dining restaurant in Des Moines, I don't expect quite, I mean, just for an example, when we changed tablecloth, we did it in a way that two people, you know, one person was taking the tablecloth off and the other was putting it on so that you never saw the bare table. I mean, that's that's just sort of because the bare table is kind of it's it takes the magic away from the dining room. So, wow. you know, that was sort of stuff we did. And I don't expect I, you know, when I go to I don't know if I went to Proudfoot and Bird or, you know, if I went to those sorts of I don't expect quite that level, but I do know a few things that should happen in restaurants. So on the one hand, I have a sense of what should happen, especially when you're paying top dollar. On the other hand, I also understand how things can go wrong. I can under I, I you know, I I can I can tell when people are in the weeds, you know, that that's that term for when you just can't keep up and you're spinning your wheels. I, and I have a lot of compassion. So I have both rigor and compassion when it comes to it. And I think, you know, I, I, I think that helps. I, I don't, I think it's really easy for us to be overly forgiving of every misstep that happens in a restaurant. And that's fine. I, 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 I love that. But on the other hand, if you're paying your hard earned money, to eat and have a nice meal, there are certain things you should be able to expect. And, you know, so it's both. 
So curious, you you tell us about your Ruth Ruth Chris experience, and that's a that's a big deal in Des Moines at this point to have Ruth Chris in the in the metro area. What's um, what's your what's your take on it? Um, I know we have to read the column, but well, no, that's fine. You know, I I mean, I wrote that for DSM. I was thrilled that DSM asked me to do that for them, that DSM magazine, um, because that meant that I got to go to a preview and order up. And I, I ended up getting like $300 worth of food for free, you know, um, it, you know, at, on somebody else's dime, um, you know, we had to leave a tip, which is fine. Um, but, you know, honestly, um, I will never spend $300 to eat at Ruth's Chris because you don't have to, um, you know, you can definitely, everything can be split. It's, um, you know, it, the food, look, the steak is excellent. You know, the ma the mashed potatoes were half butter, which were tasty. Um, the bread pudding was amazing. Our server was a, just wonderful. He was a riot. He was really fun. He loved joking around with us, but he was also one of those pros who knew how to read a table. And if we weren't going to be joking around, he was going to play it straight. You know, he was, he was great. Um, you know, would I ever go to Ruth's Chris on my own dime? Yes, I would, because it's it's just kind of a hoot. It's so big. It's so interesting. And if you're in the mood for that kind of experience, it's a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, whenever you get a free meal like that, you have to ask yourself, would I ever spend this kind of money myself? And absolutely not. That would be $360, you know, when you add, it, add the tip on top of that. Um, not, not gonna, not, that's not what I do. Um, and so that, I mean, it's fun, but I, there are many local restaurants. I, I like supporting local, but I'm also not somebody who's, who will make anybody feel bad for being curious about Ruth's Chris and wanting to go out and try it because I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. How, what is your approach to um, the ethics of reviewing? What, how do you, do you accept free meals? Do you accept free this or that? How, how do you approach I, it? I, I do not, ex I, I have on, on my, I think somewhere on my, on my Substack. I do not, I do not accept free meals unless it's a preview because that the preview, the, the only way you're going to get in before anybody else. And you want to do that to stay newsworthy is to accept a preview meal. And when I do that, I'm very, very clear. I got this meal for free because I think readers need to know that, mm -hmm. um, but no, I don't, I do not go out. I don't, I don't accept free meals because you, <laughs> I, I used to go out with my mom, you know, take my mom out on the date with diner and she'd be eating away and she'd be having it fine. She was, this is so wonderful. This is so fun. I'd say, mom, how would you feel if you were spending your own money? Oh, it's not really that good. You know, <laughs> it's like, so you have to, you have to, when you spend your own money or, you know, it, it gives you a whole different perspective than if, you know, if they start, you know, piling food on, plus I never let them know I'm coming. I'm not going to, you know, uh, fortunately I have not been reviewing restaurants for a long time and sure they're like Lynn Pritchard and George Famaro and, you know, uh, you know, a uh, Joe Tripp and some of the well-known chefs in town know who I am, but there are a lot of chefs who don't know who I am. I mean, I, I, I've been out of the loop for long enough that I can go and dine anonymously again. Um, and that's, you know, that's good. And so, no, I, I, I go just like a, a, a diner, um, just, uh, you know, like, like you, like everybody else and I pay for it. And then I write about it so I can be honest. If you were to uh, advise a restaurateur, a chef who wants to open a restaurant in Des Moines, 
are there gaps? Do we is there something we need in the metro area that we don't have? Are there um, are there too many of one thing that we don't really need? Um, what would you advise? What do we? What's oh the metro? That's a really good question. Can we open it up to other people? Sure. I'd, love, I'd love to hear what other people have to say about that. What what might you think would be a gap? Um, I well, well, I'll think about it. What about I mean, French? What, you know, you're you're a well, big French cooking expert. What well, what? That's where really true. We don't we don't have the little the little French bistro like we used to have. Remember Montage? Wait, you might not remember, but you know Montage and you know the little the little corner French restaurants that, that we don't have. We we have Django, which is big. You know, it's it's kind of more like a what. I consider a grand boulevard brasserie, you know, where, you know, it's, it's on the main drag and, you know, it, it's, it's a big, it's bigger. Uh, so yeah, the little, but see, the thing is, is I cook French at home. So I, it's not something I necessarily go out for. Do you know, I think we could use more Indian restaurants. And I was in the, um, I was in the hotel Fort Des Moines. And have you seen, if you go in one of the back entrances and walk through, there is a restaurant that's sitting there ready to be occupied. And it was originally going to be a nice upscale, I, I mean, me, medium upscale Indian restaurant. And they just, I think it, they started, started it in pandemic and they've never gotten back to it. Oh my gosh, I would love to see that happen. Would that not be the coolest thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah that would yeah. be awesome. That and Mediterranean would be nice. I mean, there's yes. a, yeah. Yes. But let, okay. Okay, gang. Come on. You've got questions for Winnie. Let's. Uh, oh, somebody said we're missing a nice mes Mexican restaurant. Really? Seems like um, we have a lot. You see, I mean, what kind of what 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 are you looking for in a Mexican restaurant? Because you know there are the um, you know there are those wonderful um, you know taqueria kinds of places like Los Lorales and you know very um, unassuming a, places. That's a comment from a participant, RSS, if you would like to, if you would like to ask in real time, but let's see, we yeah. have a couple of hands up. Artis and Laura, oh, Laura, you were first. What's your question? You'll need to unmute if you have it. I always ask journalists this question. Did you ever write something that almost got you fired? And <laughs> did you ever write a story that you really wanted to publish and your editor spiked? Um. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I wrote a story about Yelp, um, you know, what what restaurateurs really thought of Yelp. And I, I spent like three days interviewing restaurateurs and, you know, and they were really honest with me. And some of them told me, yeah, we have people we have people writing reviews, friends writing reviews for us. It's the only way. And, you know, and, uh, you know, they they were super honest. And um, there was an editor who was new at her job. And she thought everything needed to be a listicle. And she said, just scrap all that and just go go through and talk about the 10 weirdest things people write about in Yelp reviews. And I said, I just spent three days interviewing chefs about what they thought about Yelp and how it's impacting their business. And you want me to just, just scrape Yelp for really bad quotes? She's like, basically, yeah. And I said, well, I'll take my article back and you go away. You know, <laughs> so I just refused to write that article. It was like that's not what I wanted to do, and uh, yeah, that made me mad. Um, did I ever almost get fired? Um, I had really good editors 
Laura, who, who kind of never let me go that far, you know, who didn't let me, you know, they, they saved they might've saved me for myself a few times. So that's a good question. All right. Artists, you have a question. Yes. Thanks so much for being here. I really enjoy your work. Thank you. Um, and I'm a former server, ended up as a judge, but I started out as a server in college. And you learn so much, not only about food, but also about teamwork and mm -hmm. about sexual harassment. Ooh, yeah. uh, Amen. Just be a server if you need a little lesson in that. Um, so I love what you're doing. I have to bring three dozen cupcakes to a meeting on Wednesday. You got any thoughts on cupcakes in Des Moines? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I just, I haven't had their cupcakes, but I just went to, um, what's the place right off of Ingersoll? Uh, Creme. Creme. I just went okay. to Creme and I had cookies from there and the cookies <laughs> are really good. But there's also, what's the one that's down by the Iowa Tap Room? Molly's Cupcakes? No, not Molly's. There's no. one by, see, that's just it. I don't, oh. Oh, Okay. I wish I Laura's knew. Laura's given the thumbs up there. Wh which one, Laura? Uh, I, I'm sure creme is also good, but the Molly's, the one in the Molly's. East is Molly's. That's very I, good. I'm pretty sure I've had Molly's cupcakes. I didn't buy them, but I somebody brought them somewhere. And I remember thinking, these are good. Yeah. That's <laughs> a great you. question. One other thought. Um, have you ever done a column on catering services in Des Moines? You know, I, I think I should do that. Um, That'd be fun. Yeah, it would be fun. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I might have a conflict of interest there because I'm really, really, really good friends with Sid Cohn, Sid Kane, you know, catering by Sid. And she's awesome. And I love her. And she's my caterer. So. I was just <laughs> going to say, if you do one, start with Sid. Yeah, right. So we'd have to bracket Sid, you know, caterers besides Sid. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks, yeah. Ernest. Okay, Connie, you're up next. Connie Taylor. Connie? Oh. oh, you're muted. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hi, Winnie. Hi, I, I, hi, Connie. It's great to see you. Connie has a Substack, by the way. She just wrote about, about the Iowa State Fair, and she wrote the best columns. And if you didn't get to the fair, read her columns. You'll feel like you have gone to the fair. What's okay. your what's it called? Um, Iowa Girl. What is your what is your column substack called, Connie? Connie? Hello? Can you she froze, Connie. Oh, I think Connie froze. Darn. Connie, you froze. Come so, back what, oh, oh, well, we'll get back. back. Yeah, there you go. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. My internet must have gone out. They're working on it. Um, Am I, am I still gone? No, we, well, can, we hear can hear you. you. Okay. Hear you. My question about Ruth's Chris is I see that they have a dress code. And I'm wondering if you think from a diner's perspective, if that keeps people from attending a restaurant, from dining in a restaurant. Or if perhaps other diners who are spending $300 on a meal appreciate the fact that there is a dress code um, just to keep with the ambiance of the restaurant. Just wondering what you're, if you're hearing anything from other diners, what they think about that idea. Well, I put that on Facebook uh, about the Ruth's Chris dress code. And boy, that, that got to be a really hairy conversation. Um, you know, a lot of people um, I, personally, the, the dress code wasn't that it, it, I, the, the owner was wearing shorts for heaven's sakes, you know, I'm mean, the owner of the owner of that franchise was wearing shorts. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, you can wear shorts. They, I mean, the only thing they don't want you to wear now, they, they originally you couldn't wear low, it, you couldn't have low cut. And I was like, it was like no excessive cleavage. I'm like, 
who's going to decide what's excessive and who's not, you know, what's not. And it was also no midriffs. Well, that went away. Now all they say is no tank tops, no athletic gear and no um, ball caps. You know, I mean, I think in every situation, there's probably somebody like, you know, you know, somebody that might alienate. I don't know. I, I, I don't mind a dress code because I dress up. Will it prevent other people from going? I don't think Ruth's Chris is a, is that stringent of a dress code. I think just about you could, you know, you could almost wear anything as long as it's not a tank top. And most people have something besides a tank top. So I don't think it's a problem. You know, Connie, I when I go to a restaurant, I I like a nice ambience. And I do think that people are part of the ambience. You are part of what makes a restaurant cool. But I'm also not going to, you know, give anybody the stink eye if they're not dressed up. That's that. I mean, I put it this way. I wish people would dress up, but certainly it's up to it's up to everybody to do what they want to do. Okay, thanks, Connie. Liz, go ahead. You're up next. And then Bryce. Hi, Winnie. I I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing. And there's such a need for that. And I love the fact that you pull in your personal history, which includes working in places like Yonkers Tea Room and Baker's. I used to tell people, Des Moines is a great place to live, but I wouldn't want to visit here. <laughs> and that's no longer true because you can travel the world with your palate in the Metro. And uh, that Renaissance happened, what, 15 years ago? Yes. Um, but I have to agree with what artists said that sexual harassment is rife in behind the scenes in restaurants. I was on the uh, employment appeal board for a big chunk of my career and you would not believe. And sometimes that sometime I will tell you some of the more colorful stories of how hostilities got played out in a, in a restaurant setting, including one restaurant I just can't bring myself to go to even though I'm I'm sure the problem's resolved where the war between the sous chef and the pastry chef took some very um colorful uh steps but anyway um thank you for including in your purview not just metro restaurants but restaurants around the state even possibly the Midwest, I think Midwesterners are literally hungry for opportunities to take day trips or mm -hmm. short trips and and look forward to the opportunity for that special, special restaurant, special cafe, um, special tenderloin place, you know, just the gamut. And and I appreciate that you write about the gamut and I thank you very much. Well, thank you. Well, I'm enjoy I'm enjoying it a lot. And uh, I mean, I tell you something, keep your eye on Iowa City. I, I, Iowa, it just it, in the register today, was, there was another restaurant they, they wrote about, um, a new restaurant in Iowa City. I'm going, I'm in Wisconsin right now on vacation. On my way back, I'm going to spend two more nights in Iowa City to eat around there. They, that, that city, they even call themselves the, um, culinary capital of Iowa, which is kind of cheeky, <laughs> but it is, they are really, really good. They're taken off. So I highly recommend a, a, at least an overnight, if not a weekend there. 
you know, Winnie and I were talking before before noon to, uh, as you folks were gathered in the waiting room a little bit. And I think this is so important, not only for the readers, but for the retailers and the restaurateurs, because how else are we going to know about new places or things that are happening that are creative unless we stumble upon it? So I'm just thrilled. I'll never forget three years ago, there was a woman by the name of Beth Howard, who came to the first writer's retreat I did. And she got up and talked about how Kyle Munson had written a story about her because she baked pies and she sold them out of the American Gothic house. And Kyle being Kyle thought, well, that's a good story. And he wrote about, he wrote about her in, in his Iowa column and it changed her life. You know, she just went on this trajectory that, that, and it was because somebody told the story and that's what you're doing, Winnie. You're telling these stories and it's absolutely in a delightful and authentic and, um, and grounded way. I mean, really, you know yeah. what you're talking about. Well, thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you like that. I mean, one of my favorite things in the world to do was um, when I was the date book diner was find that restaurant nobody knew about and change that restaurant's life and connect people with, you know, you know, food lovers with with restaurateurs that they love. That was when the job was the best job in the world. And I did that with Thai flavors when it was on over on East um, East 14th. No one, nobody knew about it. We, I drove by it one day. I was like, what is that? You know, and I walked and I went in and it was just phenomenal. It's actually the, how I start my book. My memoir is going into Thai flavors and just having this amazing experience. And, and, um, and how the, the owner's dad used to keep asking me to go to Thailand with him because he wanted to show me Thai food because he knew how much I was enjoying it. I mean, that's just the kind of place it was, um, he wanted me to go. I mean, he was it wasn't a date. He was just asking me to go visit with his family, you know, his family in Thailand. It was very sweet. I never did. And I really wish I would have taken him up on it. But that, you know, that sort of thing. And suddenly it was like about three weeks after I wrote about it, it it just took off. And the people were so hungry for that, that kind of Thai food at the time. And it made me so happy that, you know, and they held up, you know, because the other thing is happens is you can write about a place. It's like, this place is awesome. And then they just don't hold up. The chef moves on or, you know, something happens and you're like, oh, darn. <laughs> so, but Thai flavors always did. All right, Bryce, you're up next. Yeah, I apologize, Winnie, because I, I didn't get really the introduction. I, I, I knew who you were, but I wanted to ask you a first question before I ask one. And that is, is your scope of writing only on people who are selling prepared food? Oh, uh, no, I mean, in the I business, in the business of selling food. Uh, I mean, are you thinking like um, farmers and and other people or or I'll whatever? ask my question. OK, um, I think that there's a lot of diversity that we leave out when we only talk about who are uh, people that are selling food as a business, for example. Um, if I was going to invite two of my good friends over, what would I prepare? And there's all kinds of choices from ethnicity, from age, location, availability, which I think would be of interest to other people because it gives them ideas of things they could do. Let's use even a better example. And that is I've got 12 people that are going to come to my place. And what would I serve them that I'm going to prepare myself? What would it be? That would be an instructive thing. A lot of people sort of face that 
And I think some of us are too narrow in the menus that we think about. Maybe grandma's this and, and Aunt Nellie's this. And yet you have a responsibility of preparing something special. And I think a wider audience ought to know what that is. So that's my question. Have you ever done that? Oh, well, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, people have asked me that, you know, I get questions like I'm, I've been asked to go to a potluck and they want me to bring an appetizer. What should I bring? You know, people, you know, um, and, and especially they don't want to cook. You know, I say, well, go to Flying Mango and get um, get their smoked chicken dip. You'll be a hero. <laughs> you know, but no, I know what you mean. You know, it's sort of trying to figure out what, you know, what, you know, what to do. I don't I don't very often cook for 12 people, to tell you the truth. But but um, I, I could certainly branch off into something like that if people were interested. There you go. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how COVID impacted the Des Moines restaurant mm -hmm. scene and have they recovered and has it changed things? How has it changed things? Well, I mean, as we all know, COVID was, you know, it was dire. It, you know, they, our restaurants were in peril for a while and um, it was, it was real tough going. Um, I have talked to a lot of restaurateurs since then. And the, the biggest issue was they lost help. You know, they, they, it, I mean, for a while it was they were having a hard time getting supplies but really the biggest issue was they lost staff and they lost help and they couldn't staff up and that was the hardest thing i have been asking every time i talk to a restaurateur the first thing i ask them is how's it going with the staffing they're all doing fine with getting people to work for them now that is happening ruth's chris had 1200 applicants for the jobs oh. at ruth's chris so they you know so and and um who else was telling me they had just got, oh, oh, um, Lynn Pritchard at um, table 120. He's going to reopen table 128. He says he's got, you know, a stack of people who want to work for him. And a lot of this sometimes has to do with, you know, who the people are. People will work for Lynn Pritchard. He's, a, you know, from what I hear, you know, good employer. So, um, you know, that's that's important. Um, so that's that's good. What happened though, was we got those legacy servers, those career servers, those people who knew how to wait tables. And also, you know, the kitchen staff as well. They, a lot of those people left and they left the industry and they left for good. So now what restaurateurs are faced with is getting this new, this, you know, this new crew in who really don't know how to wait a table and really haven't been trained. And they're, they're all playing catch up, trying to, trying to train them. And I talked to one person and I said, do you think it's ever going to come back where we'll have that level of service that we used to have? Um, and he said, no, he said, basically, he didn't think people really cared about the kind of service that, you know, I'm talking, I'm not talking bar grill service or pizzeria service. I'm talking about when you go to a really nice restaurant, say Harbinger or, you know, something like that. Do you expect, you know, a server who really knows the menu, who has a sense of good timings, who, you know, who really, you know, get gets the whole idea of what it is to wait a table? Or do you want just someone who's nice and smiles? And, you know, this this restaurant tour, who is a well-known restaurant tour, really, I won't say his name because I disagree with him so much. He said, people don't, people only want, they just want a nice, friendly face, someone who smiles a lot. They don't care about expertise that much anymore. I disagree. I mean, I, I, I what I told him is people won't tell you they want that because they'll sound like a snob. It's like, no, I really want a good server. It's like, 
that makes you sound like you you think you're the queen or something. No, no, it, it's not. That's not the question. You know, that's not the that's not the issue. The issue is when you sit down, you want somebody who can tell you about the menu, who can answer your questions. When you're paying top dollar at a place, you should be able to expect those things. Um, so that this is this is where they're having a hard time. I think they're having a hard time because they don't know how much they need to really train people how much we care about that sort of thing and how much effort they're going to put into it. I think that's kind of the lingering crisis since we've lost, since we've lost so many career servers who, who really knew how to do all that stuff. Question. Do you think Iowa in general is going to suffer any kind of tourism backlash because of the political scene? I know you don't do oh. politics. I know you, I know you don't touch on that, but I've been reading recently that some conventions won't come to Iowa and you know this this can't help but have some kind of ripple effect on maybe you don't want to touch that with a 10 foot well, I don't I don't really I just don't have any expertise it's not that I don't I don't mind I mean I don't know how many people come to Iowa in tourism anyway I know people who won't move here because of that I know people who are leaving here because of that I mean I had a friend who moved here from Seattle um you know during the tail end of the Obama years and she's she wants to leave now um because you know she just uh, i can't live in a red state you know that's you know and so i think there are people who are you know they're not happy with this um but as far as i i couldn't answer the question about tourism I'm i just i digress i'm sorry i just well, it's, a, it's a good question yeah what about tipping tell us what's oh. the appropriate i mean tell us about how tipping has changed I, you wrote a column about you know, that now they automatically have this suggested tipping thing. And that 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 was quite interesting. But tell us your I perspective. Think, I think that's driving everybody crazy. And I, I um, okay, first of all, I just want to tell, I, I want to be clear, I will never tell anybody how much to tip. And I won't tell them they have to tip a certain amount. Um, or I, I will only say that, you know, and everybody knows that when you sit down at a table and you order you have to tip. You do know that you have to tip. I mean, everybody knows that. Everybody's known that forever. And Iowans tip on an average of like 19.1% or something like that. It's very high. Wow. I mean, I, I mean, I think high because when I was waited tables, it was like 10% was like, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> but, but that's a different time. Um, you know, we know that servers are paid a sub-minimum wage um, and they, you know, they will never make less than... Unless, unless there's wage theft, which is a possibility, but um, by law they have to be paid at least minimum wage. If the server does, the server can be paid as little as I think is four thirty-five an hour or four twenty-five an hour. If they don't make up to seven twenty-five an hour, the restaurant has to make a difference. If they don't make that in tips, now all of us know that nobody can live on seven twenty-five an hour, and you know so, you know, but you should also know that most server I talked I've talked to a lot of people about this most servers in this town at the lower end of you know like the bar grills and the casual ends are making about $20 an hour including tips and the mid-range they're getting up to 30 and then at the higher end they're getting close to 40 so they're not you know it it's a hard job it's a you know there's there's all sorts of issues as as people have have um brought up um, they deserve every penny they get, but they're also not walking out with four thirty-five an hour, which is what a lot of people think. I mean, people, people, people are you know swear it's like oh, servers only make four thirty-five an hour. It's like I don't think they can make enough, but they do make more than four thirty-five an hour. Um, but so that said, 
we all need to tip when we sit down at a restaurant. That's all there is to it. We all know that. I don't need to tell you that. But the question is, is what do you do when you get that POS screen at the cupcake shop or at the ice cream store or whatever? And my answer to that is what the guy at Cornell, um, Cornell University, he has studied tipping for um, 30 years. And he says, first of all, he says, look, I'm not sure what you're supposed to tip, but I will tell you that you tip in, in light of your own values and your own motivation. So you should know that most of those people behind the counter are not, they're not the sub-minimum wage workers. They will be making between 11 and maybe $18 an hour. Again, can you live on $11 an hour? Probably not. You want to throw them some more money? Go ahead. But they're not the sub-minimum wage people. So that's the issue. Now, I don't tip at a cupcake shop. I don't tip at a bakery. I think. I'm not saying you shouldn't. You should do what you want to do. Your values, your motivation. I will tip my barista who makes me a nice you know, drink the way I like it. I will tip places that I go a lot, that I have a relationship. But if somebody is really just putting something in a bag for me and handing it to me, I I, I have no trouble hitting no tip. That's that's me. So Is wage theft an issue, do you think, here? I haven't heard of it being an issue. That doesn't mean it isn't. But you know, wage theft can happen in any industry. Um, so do we do we tip more because we're worried that somebody's you know a victim of wage theft? You know, again, tip in line with your values and your motivations. If your values are and you know, the other thing is like sometimes you can kind of tell. It's like when you, when you have a teenager behind the counter, and this is I know this is I'm getting into hot water here, but. You know, you have a you have a kid who's just you know doing a sort of after school summer job. You know, you it, you can you can tip them. You know, but but most likely their needs are being met by their parents. But you know, if you're, I, I went to the cookie shop out in um um uh, way out west that crumble cookies, and you you ordered a kiosk, and um. And they ask you for a tip. And I'm like, I'm not tipping, you know, but I didn't see the people behind the counter. Then I went up to the counter to get my cookie. And there were people there who really looked like they could have used a few more dollars. And I felt really bad. I was like, I wish I would have tipped, but there was no tip jar. And it was too late. And I walked out and I kind of went, see, this is, this is where we all get confused. Like, what should we be doing in those situations? Um, do you so, see a trend? Do you see a trend that electronic, um, uh order taking and, and 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 use of technology is going to sweep the industry or oh i think it already kind of has i mean i i think it, you've you, we've all gone to restaurants where even at the table service they'll come up with a pos screen and um ask you to oh are, are, are you talking about ordering at the table on the pos yeah, yeah. well that, just technology in general yeah i think technology is here to stay uh whether or not what i'm really interested in is what's going to happen when we start getting like if you've gone to newark airport or a lot of airports where you sit down and you order something and then a food runner just brings it to you and sets it down and leaves and but you're asked for a tip in advance that's just that's just so awkward to me because mm -hmm. if something goes wrong you've already tipped the person there's no incentive for anybody to make anything right you've already paid it's just, it's just a very bad feeling. And it goes against everything I think about hospitality. Um, just to sort of upfront demand that you you tip somebody. And yet you probably should tip those people because they are in a way servers. You know, they're, they're in that middle ground between counter help and servers because they are actually bringing the food out of the kitchen and setting it in front of you. I just took a look at the chat. We've got some good questions in chat. Okay, and cool. Liz and Laura, your hands are still up if you have a 
question, just let me know. Laura, do you? Yeah, okay, go ahead, Laura. I know you don't, sorry, I know you don't like to get into politics, but the Iowa Restaurant Association was like one of the most important lobbying groups behind that child labor bill uh, because they need the help. As you were mentioning with the pandemic, yeah. that restaurants have had a lot of trouble finding the help. I mean, do you have thoughts about what the impact is going to be where teenagers are able to work longer shifts, they're able to work later. Um, like now it's during the school year, they'll be able to work until 9 p.m. and in the summer until 11 p.m. Um, at younger ages than before. They'll be able to serve alcohol. Some teenagers will be able to serve alcohol. Do you have thoughts about that? Well, I've talked to quite a few people. Um, I think, and that's a really good question. It's very fair. Um, look, I worked at I worked in restaurants when I was, you know, 13 and three quarters. And, you know, I loved it. I, I worked at the country kitchen. I hated the country kitchen, but I liked making money when I was a kid. I And I'd have to work till nine and 10 o'clock. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I probably would have done better in high school if I didn't. But, you know, my I was where I was working so I could buy a better bicycle. You know, I think where, you, where you're, you know, where you're getting in trouble, where I'm worried is not the people like, um, I don't know. Louis Wine Dive is a great example where I went there and there was a busboy there. He was a young kid. He was 16 and he was doing just the kind of work that I used to do when I was 16. And I thought, good for him. Good for them. He was being supervised by people. It was like it was the perfect situation. But what I think is going to happen is you're going to get people who, you know, because they themselves are, you know, not making a good living they're going to send their kids to work for somewhere like mcdonald's or somewhere and those people are going to be exploited just as their parents are exploited those are the people i'm worried about i i think that's for me that's going to be hard to see um and and wrong that you know you if you have a 14 year old working till nine o'clock you know um making hamburgers with no none of that none of that sort of camaraderie and supervision and care and teamwork and all of that stuff that was going on at Louis Wine Dive and expertise and things you're learning there's just such a wide range of what it means to work in a restaurant I think so there's no easy answer for that I don't think it's I don't and I also don't really have a problem that much with having a kid serve a beer um, I mean again I have to be 16 it can't be 14. As long as there's somebody there, as long, and it's like, and, and this has to be, if I were a parent, I would be making sure who's supervising. Do you have people on the floor watching people or are these kids on their own? If they're on their own, don't, don't let your kids work. Don't let your kid work there. I mean, when I worked at the country kitchen, we were on our own. We didn't serve alcohol, but you know, there was, there was a lot of shenanigans and um, that was not good. Um, so it's, I think, it, I think it's a, uh, there's no easy answer, but I think working in restaurants as a kid is not as a, you know, 14 to 16 to 18 year old is not a bad thing. Uh, it's just the kind of restaurant and who's take, are you taste it goes back to what I'm writing about in my memoir. I was really taken care of by the people I worked for when I was 14, 15 and 16. They cared deeply about the people who were working for them. If you don't have that level of care, then it's going to not, it's not going to be a good thing. Tell us about Des Moines chefs. What do you? What do they talk about with you? What? What is there a culture among chefs? Are they? Oh, I don't I, know. It's hard to say. You know, I think chefs, unfortunately, because I was the date book diner for so long, they became very guarded around me, and it was hard to get them to really open up and you know say things. Or if they did say things, they weren't printable. <laughs> you know, they'd be like, "Oh, this is off the record." You know. Um, 
Yeah, I I think, Julie, one of the hardest things in the world is to interview chefs because they are most articulate in what they put on the plate. They're not, you know, they 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 don't necessarily need or want to be verbal people all the time. Some There are some exceptions. I mean, George Tomorrow is a wonderful interview. So is Lynn Pritchard. You know, there are some that are really great interviews, but, you know, a lot of them just, they speak best through what they do. You do you go to the dinners that the that the Des Moines Area Community College Culinary Department puts on? Have you done those? Those were wonderful, uh, but I haven't been for fifteen or twenty years. Yeah, interesting. Okay, any other any other questions? Yeah. Okay, I'm curious about this. Um, some of these. Um, what what are some of these people saying? Do I go in disguise? No, and the reason is. Um, first of all, I'm not recognized that much anymore. Second of all, I always thought if I wore a disguise, people would see right through. I mean, Ruth Reichel, she, you know, she, she did these crazy getups. If I did a crazy getup, people would be like, what's with that woman? They, people would be really looking at, I, I'd, I'd be a little more, um, uh, visible than I'd want to be. And I, I'm also afraid if I did a disguise, people would see through it. They'd walk by, and go, hi, Winnie. <laughs> that would be so embarrassing. I mean, in a city of, you know, 8 million people, it's easier to do something like that. But that's a, that's a question I get often. And it's a good question, Diane. Thank you. Um, let's see, what do I think of toast, et cetera? Yeah, that's, you know, that's toast is driving me crazy. I just, I don't like, I don't, I don't like the server standing there while I input the tip. It's just a weird thing. And, um, it's not their fault. They have to do it. That's, that's, that's the system, but it's a strange system. What do diners do when ordering that drives chefs crazy? I think it's trying to tell chefs what to do in terms of, you know, I want this, you know, this item comes with this, but could you make it with this instead? You know, I think that drives them crazy. They thought very, very, I mean, you look, if you have an allergy or if you have issues, that's one thing, but if you just think you might like it better a different way, order something else. I mean, they've spent a lot of time trying to make, you know, the food the way they think it should be. Twice the waiter clicked the tip button for us via the POS system. No choice. They clicked 22 without asking. Gosh, I hope that's not a trend too, Stacy. That's not very nice. Yeah. Kelly um, has a question. She has her hand up. Oh, sure. Who's she that? She can wrap it up for us here. Okay. Yep. Okay. Winnie, one more question for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if you're going to branch off into liquid research with the Iowa craft beers and Iowa craft ciders, which in my opinion are so delightful. Yes. And so grateful that the ciders are taking off. Um, had some wonderful ones at the Iowa State Fair. Oh, good. And so I'm just wondering if if you're interested in going down that path at all. I would be, you know, um, I, I was a wine writer for many years and I had to give that up because I started getting migraines, which, you know, wine gives me migraines. Um, I can drink so little now that I probably won't go down that path because it's hard for me to really enjoy, you know, as much as I want to, but I, I agree with you. The beer and the ciders are just so exciting right now, aren't they? So is that an opportunity for you, Winnie, to bring somebody in that would like yes, to do a guest sure column? Yeah. Yes, that would be okay. a good guest column. Yeah. Hey, Connie, let's talk. Hey, Connie. <laughs> Winnie, it's delightful to have you on this call, and I very much appreciate it. And nobody asked you what your favorite restaurant was. Oh, my you gosh. Believe it? I, we, she was so concerned people were going to want to know what her favorite restaurants were. <laughs> 
that's so funny because usually, you know, usually that's the question I get the most is, you know, what do you think of this restaurant? What do you think of this restaurant? And I, it just, it's hard to just give those quick answers because I write, you know, 400 words about what I think of restaurants, not just quickie answers. But anyway, thank you. Thank you, everybody. It was nice chatting with you all. All right. Now this is going to go out in podcast form to the uh, the subscribers. And I encourage you to send it to others because there are a lot of people who still don't know that Winnie is doing this and let's help her grow her subscriber base. Thank you all for participating. Winnie, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.